0: Ecclesiastes 7 <laughs> 15 to 22. Is that right? Let's make sure I got that right. Yes. In my vain life I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Then we'll go to Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 to 6. Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord.
1: well hey good morning everyone how are we good very very good thank you sam for reading the text for us this morning Uh, again if you don't have a bible we can get one from the back for you we are going to work through this text that was just read for us line by line as we typically do and so i'm excited that we have this opportunity to do so just a bit of a summary as far as where we have been and then a little bit of an introduction as far as where we are going today. We are in this series through going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've subtitled this, The Search for Meaning, as the author of Ecclesiastes is using the teaching of the preacher to pull out of us all of the places in our life that we look to for meaning and purpose, in particular, how we look to those things and don't include God in them. And without including God in them, what he says is that these things are ultimately meaningless. We talked in the first week about our aspirations. He mentions pleasure, success, and accomplishment. We then transitioned for two weeks and talked about the assets that we have in our lives. We talked about time, money, relationships, and power. And then today, we are starting to shift our focus to attitudes. Attitudes. As the author does not hold back, now challenging the internal drivers and our internal motivations for the reasons that we do things. I hope you're ready for that. If not, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves, invite Jesus to teach us, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord Jesus, we are grateful. We're grateful to sing. We're grateful to recite. There are times, Lord Jesus, when our faith is weak and there is a powerful experience that happens inside of us, looking around us and seeing others at times worshiping the challenge that that is to ourselves. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would lift our hearts, lift our eyes. Lift all of our motivations past ourselves and on to you. For you truly are the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes 7, 15 to 22. Let's dig in. How does our preacher begin? In my vain life, I have seen Everything. Now, upon first reading, we could interpret this as a little bit of an exaggeration. What do you mean you've seen everything? But remember what the preacher claims back earlier on in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 9 to 10 on the screen for us. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Therefore, what this means is that if there was ever a person who could claim, I have seen everything. It is this preacher. I want you to notice, however, maybe you caught it, the way that the preacher now characterizes his very own life. Vain. Therefore, not only have the aspects of his life become vanity, now he sees that life itself is vain. A chasing after the smoke, trying to make sense of the fog. Okay, but what's the next vanity? What is this first attitude? 15b There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Let me read that again. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life. In his evil doing. Now, while it might not seem particularly apparent to us, think for a moment about the internal motivation that would come from making a statement like this You live rightly, you pursue righteousness, okay, but there's a wicked person who prolongs his life through evil doing, not through righteousness. This is not fair. But why would you say this is not fair? It's the internal motive of religiosity. Religiosity. What is religiosity? Religiosity is believing that you should be rewarded by God for your right belief and your good behavior. Put another way, God owes me. Now, religiosity is self-righteousness, and it seeps its way into our hearts when our obedience to God is motivated, not in response to God's love, but as a way in our minds to earn God's love. God will love me more if I obey him. This is religiosity and this is my story growing up in a home where my parents taught me the gospel i misinterpreted the gospel and ran to religiosity and legalism believing that i had this checklist of all these great things that i could do for god i even made the decision to go to bible school for this other check mark on this to do good for god list And in God's grace, in that very first week, I was embarrassed before him when we were given an opportunity to spend a half an hour alone with God, and I had no idea what I would do in that half an hour. And I sensed the Lord, the maker of the universe, creator of everything, saying to me, Matt, you know a lot about me, but you do not actually know me. And what God wanted was a relationship with me. Now, you might ask the question, well, what's the problem with this posture? We have, in part, an answer here. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So, therefore, there's a, there's a couple of problems with this religiosity motive and attitude. One, religiosity and righteousness will not prolong your life. And so what this means is that there seems to be, maybe you hear that and you go, well, that's unfair. But think about why that feels unfair to you. It's only unfair because it's only true if we believe that God owes us something for our obedience. And life at times is random, and good people do in fact die. So there's a problem with religiosity. If we go, I'm going to be overly righteous and and religious because then God owes me and he'll prolong my life. No, that's not what's going to happen. But then there's an even seedier and deeper motive going on in the problem with religiosity and that comparing yourself to the wicked person and therefore what you believe you are owed dismantles grace. What do I mean by this? Well, religiosity makes absolutely no room for grace. The only room made for grace is a false grace that says, I deserve grace because I'm good. But please hear me. That is not grace. Grace is unmerited favor, meaning that there is nothing that you have done nor will do to deserve it. The preacher continues, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, in many ways, the preacher is simply repeating here what he has said before about wisdom. Pursue wisdom. But he adds the additional caution towards religiosity, and that the only spirit of religiosity will actually destroy you from the inside out. The constant desire to be in control that comes from this posture is just another pursuit of vanity. The constant comparison game and self-righteousness will drive you away from God and from others because we strive to feel superior and then boost our own egos. Okay? So we won't pursue religiosity or righteousness. Should we live wickedly? The preacher continues, verse 17, be not overly wicked, (laughs) neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? In other words, no, we should not live wickedly. Wickedness is not the answer for it too, practically speaking, could lead to an immature death. But there's actually more going on here, and that religiosity and wickedness or lawlessness are actually two opposite ends of the very same coin. What do I mean by this? Because, again, on first blush, it seems like, well, they're two opposite ends of the spectrum. But they're not. They share a lot of similarities. And the first similarities that they share is that both are overconfident, and both of them are sinful, according to the scriptural standards. Both of them. Religiosity, righteousness, pursuit, God, you owe me, is sinful. It's overconfident. Secondly, both lead to tragedy and the absolute brokenness that we see in our world today. You just think about the world and some of the worst things that have happened or even some of the worst attitudes that you could have towards other people at times in our culture and in our world are motivated by just a pure desire for wickedness and lawlessness and then for a hyper-religiosity. But then thirdly, maybe the worst yet most similar thing about these two postures is that they both fail to trust Jesus. Timothy Keller, in his book, Center Church, writes this. He's contrasting here these two postures then to the true gospel. The power of the gospel comes to us in two movements. It first says, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. But then quickly follows with, I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. The former outflanks antinomianism, or another word for that is irreligion, or relativism, while the latter staves off legalism. Hear this. If your gospel even slightly resembles the message of, you must believe and live right to be saved, or God just loves and accepts everyone just as they are, you will find that your communication and message is not doing the identity-changing, heart-shaping, transformative work. Let's continue. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In other words, verse 18a is saying, stay in touch with both sides. But 18b gives us the key. The fear of God is the key in directing you to stay in touch with both sides of an issue because you will deal responsibly with all of reality, holding on to life with open hands. How is this? Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in the city. Once again, this encouragement towards wisdom. Then verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Brothers and sisters, let me read that verse again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth or woman who does good and never sins. Here is the great leveler and a key to the fear of God. As much as you can tout wisdom and tout your own religiosity and righteousness, every single one of us are guilty, and therefore all of us are at the mercy of a perfect and holy God. The preacher provides an example. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all of the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This reminds me, if you're familiar with James, James 3 verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Therefore, our speech And the way that we speak about others is a primary place where each and every single one of us falls short. And this shows that none of us are perfect or righteous enough for the reward that we think we are actually owed. And that's not the gospel, because the gospel tells us this. There has only ever been one perfect and righteous man, and in this man, Jesus Christ, we receive grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Tim Chaddock, in his book Better, which I quoted throughout this series, says this, Our standing with God is not based upon how well each of us performs. Our standing with God is based on how well Jesus performed, and he performed perfectly. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Religiosity does not work the way that we want it to, and no matter how hard we try. And so the invitation is to surrender to love and then to receive God's grace. So this is attitude number one, and you might say, well, that was a tough one. Well, get ready for the second. Flip with me to Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 to 6. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 to 6. We had religiosity. What is the next one? This one is more apparent and obvious in our text. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Did you catch it? Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from what? A man's envy of his neighbor. Now, you maybe read that word envy and you go, hmm, don't use that word very often. What's that all about? Let's define envy. What is it? A man by the name of Jeff Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. One of his chapters is on envy, this respectable sin. He writes this. Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we want that same advantage, leading to the further sin of covetousness. And sometimes we just resent the other person having something that we don't have. But we don't just envy people in general. Usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy— First, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify. Second, we tend to envy in them the areas that we value most. Again, Tim Chaddock in his book Better says this deciphering between covetousness, jealousy, and then envy. Covetousness wants the things in the neighbor's hand, jealousy desires to be the neighbor. And envy wants to take away whatever it is that the neighbor has in his or her hands. Let me read that again. Covetousness wants the things in the neighbor's hand. Jealousy desires to be the neighbor. And envy wants to take away whatever it is that the neighbor has in his or her hands. Let's take some examples. Parents. Envying other parents whose children are better athletes better students, and maybe even better behaved. And you don't want your friends to experience any of those things because you don't have that. Students, you envy other students whose parents paid for a portion or all of their education and you think that's not fair and that person should not enjoy enjoy that benefit. If you're a single person, you envy a friend for a new relationship that they started and ultimately what you believe is that they don't deserve that relationship. Married people, you envy a friend's marriage that is doing better than your own. And deep down, you wish that your friend's marriage was as bad as your own. Or how about friends who have a nicer home or drive a nicer car than you do? You don't want them to experience that advantage. Jeff Bridges continues, Whenever we compare ourselves with anyone whose circumstances seem better than ours, we face the temptation to envy him or her. We may not even want the better circumstances of our neighbor or friend. We just resent their having them. It's terrible. Now, how does envy motivate skill in our work? Let's break that down. Well, when we envy, we typically envy someone who enjoys an advantage that we don't have. And therefore, we work harder and we try to gain more skill in order to have the same or better advantage. We envy when we want recognition. And therefore, what we do is we work harder and gain more skill to try and gain increased recognition. Thirdly, we envy when there are enough similarities in our lives to someone else that the differences tend to strike us in the face. And therefore, what we do is we work harder and gain more skill to decrease those differences. Now, you might say, well, what's so wrong with envy? Because from an economic and competitive perspective, couldn't be seen as a good end. I mean, certainly, there have been competitions out there in the world, and people have tried hard to beat out other people. So what's so bad with this? People work harder, and in some cases, people make no money, make more money. Well, the answer, if you're not a follower of Jesus... Yes, totally possible. And if you are a follower of Jesus, there are times where it's good to have some healthy competition, but beware of envy in the human heart. And as we'll explore in a minute, envy will actually lead to a slow death. But if you are a follower of Jesus, We have to take this seriously because envy is listed amongst the vile sins that Paul catalogs in Romans 1 verse 29 and then also in Galatians 5 verse 21. It's probably why this Jeff Bridges wrote a book on respectable sins, one chapter being on envy. Well, why is it listed amongst these lists? I mean, is Paul just a downer? Why is it listed? One, when you envy another person, What happens is that we stop seeing that other person as god's creation as a person made in his image and instead we say that you're a rival and you treat a rival much different than you treat somebody made in the image of god secondly it reveals a desire in ourselves to prove ourselves through efforts and abilities and therefore becomes a tool to measure our own worth Envy can also be interlinked with religiosity, what I talked about just a moment ago. But thirdly, envy is ultimately an affront to God because ultimately it's actually a complaint against God and what he has or hasn't given us. Fourthly, envy turns God into the enemy because he fails to solve our problems and give us what we want. And fifthly, envy is a form of unbelief as we try to push God out of the picture all together. James 3, verse 16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every vile practice. Proverbs 14, verse 30, A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. okay so what is the answer right how do we move past this this envy reality because if you're anything like me it seems near impossible verse five the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh did you catch that the first time sam read it for us the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh well that's weird Sometimes we can say that. The Bible is strange. This is a strange little verse. What does that mean? Well, folds his hands is speaking of thoughtfulness. Thought, thought, Turn to your neighbor and say, flothfulness. <laughs> that is a weird one. What a word. When I was rehearsing all of this, I didn't get caught on slothfulness Yet here we are on slothfulness and getting stuck. So folding of the hands is in reference to slothfulness and laziness. In other words, don't go to slothfulness and laziness to try to avoid envy. Saying that's not the answer. And then the second part of the verse eats his own flesh. As I went to Peterson's paraphrase, he puts it this way. His, slow, his sloth is slow suicide. His sloth is slow suicide. Okay, so while envy is not the answer, and laziness, laziness or slothfulness <laughs> is not the answer, what is the answer? There's going to be no more of that S word going forward. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Another strange verse. What do you mean? Well, rather than having two hands full of toil, have one hand full of toil and the other hand full of peace and quietness. Well, how do we do that? How do we develop this type of posture? Firstly, we confess our envy. We confess our envy. We must come to see the damage that it is doing to ourselves and others, and we must honestly admit, confess, and repent of its effects in our lives. For as 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Secondly, we trust the gift giver, And then we open our hands in surrender you and i control what we can control which is always much less than we think isn't it and we get off the hamster wheel of envy jealousy and covetousness and we trust what god has in fact provided believing that he is good and that he knows what is best for us just a question to reflect on How would you live over the next 24 hours if you actually believed in your head and in your heart that you had everything that you needed? How would that change your posture? Thirdly, we return to Christ time and time again. He never leaves us, but sometimes there is this posture of our hearts where we return to him time and time again. I love this paraphrase of Thomas Keating. If your mind gets distracted a thousand times in ten minutes of silent prayer, it's a thousand opportunities to come back to the loving presence of Jesus. And so we come back time and time again. And then fourthly, praise God, we can rely on the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he gives us new power desires, and strength to say no to sin and instead say yes to Christ. Well, that's not enough. Here are three spiritual practices to experience God's grace and to also nurture surrender. Because at times it's not enough to know it, we also have to practice it. And one of these practices, our missional community has been looking at this over the last month, is the spiritual practice of Sabbath, of work six and rest for one, to stop, rest, delight, and to worship. You know, some of us need to be told work six. Others of us need to be told stop and rest for one. But as I would assume most of us are in that second category, stop, rest, delight, worship. Secondly, generosity, Give your stuff away and allow it to have no hold on you. Give it away before it has an opportunity to tempt you into something that you believe that you need to keep up with the person next door, or the person who works across from you, or the student that's a couple doors down. Thirdly, I didn't know, I don't know if you knew that this was a spiritual practice, but you can read. Um, Celebration of the Disciplines by Foster. I think it's Foster. No, it's not Foster. Who is it? It is Foster. Way to go, everyone. You're all probably very good at this then. But his final chapter is the spiritual practice of celebration. In other words, we intentionally plan to celebrate the good gifts that God's given us. Augustine of Hippo, this is a while ago, everybody, but he said this. The Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. The Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. And so what that means is that we celebrate and we recreate and we thank God for the good gifts that he has given. How would we live over the next 24 hours if we truly believed that God had given us everything that we needed? Stop Rest, delight, and worship.